We're going to uh, jump from John's vision of Jesus ruling over the churches to John's uh, vision in chapter 4. I'm going to read the whole chapter. John tells us, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, a rainbow uh, resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had, the face, had a face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. And each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Let's pray. Lord, it is with a touch of excitement that we see that uh, John was faced with an open door. And to have the privilege of uh, uh, having him describe what he saw beyond that door. We pray for each one of us this morning that you would uh, help us to understand what he saw and to apply it to, to our lives and our appreciation of this world. Please, Lord, then, draw us closer to you and let us end our time together praising you the more fully because of what we've learned in Christ's name. Amen. I came gradually to disbelieve Christianity as a divine revelation. Disbelief crept over me at a slow rate, but was at last complete. The rate was so slow that I felt no distress and have never since doubted, even for a single second, that my conclusion was correct. Those are actually the words of Charles Darwin from his uh, autobiography, Darwin of course, is famous for his great work published in 1859, The Origin of Species, in which he set out the theory of evolution by natural selection. And Darwin grew up in a world 
in which almost everyone agreed that God's great and wonderful purposes for his creation were, were displayed in the marvellous variety and beauty of the natural world. But his key argument in the origin of species is that we did not need to propose some great purpose to understand the world. He said, rather the simple operation of natural variation combined with natural selection of the most successful variants was enough to create all the, the marvellous variety that we now see. And of course, Darwin caused a massive stir. In his day, there was a growing band of uh, atheists and they seized on what Darwin said as proof that God did not exist. Many Christians, on the, uh, on the other hand, felt profoundly threatened by his theory. And they, uh, they set themselves very firmly against all that Darwin taught. There was actually a famous dialogue between Darwin's very aggressively atheistic disciple T.H. Huxley and Bishop Wilberforce. Wilberforce was uh, quite a, an orator with a sarcastic wit, and at one, force, at one point he asked Huxley whether he was descended from an ape on his father's or his mother's side. To which uh, Huxley replied that he would rather have an ape for an ancestor than someone like the bishop. Actually, today, most Christians don't feel quite so threatened by uh, Darwin's observations. They, they point out that even if his theory is, is, uh, is proven to a certain extent as, as uh, a mechanism by which species may uh, occur, they do not, it does not at all preclude the, the, the possibility of God overseeing the process and God even giving a decisive nudge to the process at certain key points. They... Uh, they say, in fact, that the real problem in Darwin's day was that Darwin's disciples especially took some observations that he made which were very valuable and turned them into a whole ideology, a whole, they felt, complete explanation of the way the world worked. Actually today, even in scientific circles, the, uh, Darwinism as an ideology is beginning to uh, fall apart uh, more than a little bit. But Darwin's theory, though, has had a profound impression on the minds of ordinary people today. For many people, since Darwin, this world is no longer really God's world. You know, we're not designed by God, they say. We're just the product of our selfish genes. We're not made to worship God, they say, so we might as well worship uh, ourselves. Right and wrong, they say, is no longer defined by a creator who has rights over us as his creatures. No, right and wrong is de de uh, defined simply by survival of the fittest. The future, they say, is not determined by God, it is determined by us. Richard Dawkins, who's a professor in, uh, in Oxford, actually, and a, a modern disciple of Darwin, is the author of numerous books seeking to explain that there is, in his words, at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. 
And yet, actually, as we hear that, we instinctively rebel against it, don't we? And could the world really be such a dark place? See, Jonathan Miller, the uh, a neuroscientist turned theatre director, calls himself a pious atheist. He, he insists, actually, that the idea of God is fatuous. He says anyone who believes in, in God must be an idiot. But then he says that the fact of consciousness is something that evokes in him uh, something akin to worship. He says, I am a pious atheist. In the end, it seems actually very difficult for people to believe in a world of blind, pitiless indifference. This morning I want to tell you we don't need to. We don't need to. Over the last couple of weeks, uh, if you've been looking at the book of Revelation, we've seen how it's a book that actually fundamentally draws back the curtain on the world to reveal, to reveal the, the hidden spiritual dimension of what is going on. Last week, last week we saw how God really sees his church, didn't we? We saw, saw that to the, to the world the church looks rather insignificant, rather weak and failing. It looks like a, a little Cinderella institution bullied by her big ugly sisters. But draw the curtain back and we see Christ dwelling in the midst of the church, ruling over her, protecting her. Chapters 2 and 3, as I said, are seven letters to individual churches about their individual situations. And then chapter 4 continues this visionary experience of John. But this time it pans the camera back, so to speak. It was focused on the church, but now the focus is going to go much wider. Chapter 4 itself, in fact, begins to look at God's relationship with his whole world. We're going to see that uh, this morning. The world not as revealed by Darwin, but the world is revealed by God. After this, he says, I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And a voice I had heard at first speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. That invitation to see what must take place after this is uh, uh, an invitation for, for the whole of the rest of the visions in fact, we're not going to get to much of what's happening after this for a little while. That begins, in fact, to start in chapter 6 when the, the action gets going and starts hotting up. Chapters 4 and 5 are fundamentally static scenes which set the scene for uh, how God sees this world. And uh, uh, chapter 4 is uh, going to tell us profoundly this world is made by God and for God. First thing that uh, John sees in the, in the verse, first six verses of chapter four is that God is intrinsically wonderful and yet separate from his creation. 
Once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. The one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. Seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. And also that before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. The vision actually echoes some of the many times in which God revealed himself in the Old Testament. When God came down in his awesome holiness at Mount Sinai, there was a, there was a trumpet sound, there was thunder and lightning. When Moses was uh, uh, told to, to come up, just as John is told here, in Moses' day, uh, Moses received, of course, the words of the covenant. And then when Ezekiel was commissioned to pr pronounce woes on Israel for breaking that very covenant that God had given, he was taken up in a trance in the spirit. He saw a throne with someone sitting on it who was a, a dazzlingly beautiful, who was surrounded by a rainbow. And actually, when God dwelt with his people in the temple, he lived in the Holy of Holies. And there before the Holy of Holies was a great bowl of water designed for ritual washing. And it was so big it was called the sea. See, God has appeared to John. Just as people caught glimpses of God in the Old Testament sometimes, John has been brought into God's presence. All his prior appearances, in fact, are sort of rolled into one great awesome experience for John. And uh, uh, John sees God as, as, as powerful, as authoritative, as fearsome, and yet ravishingly beautiful and utterly perfect. But he is separate too. It's difficult to quite work out all the layout that John describes in this uh, vision. But it does seem clear that this sea that's described in verse 6, the sea of glass, clear as crystal, separates John from God. It seems to stand as an obstacle between this world and the throne room of God. And that's confirmed, actually, at the beginning of chapter 21, when God finally does dwell with his, uh, with his creation, and then we are told there is no longer any sea. No longer any separation between God and the visible world. But for now, as John sees the world now, there is a great gulf of separation. This is the world we live in, you see. This is, this is God showing John what the world is like. A world in which God is enthroned in all his wonderful majesty, and yet, yet a world which at the same time lives with God's absence. It is possible, isn't it, to understand how people could not believe in God. There are aspects of this world that seem to proclaim God's absence. John knew that. John had suffered persecution and he had not been protected from it. As he languished in uh, exile, he was a living example of the way that sometimes God does not seem to be ruling in this world. And you and I know many other examples, don't we? 
many other moments in our lives when we wonder whether God really is in control, whether God really is up there, whether God really is worth worshipping. Now, after the First World War, many people turned away from God in this country because they were so horrified at the atrocities and the pointless slaughter of the trenches. You know, during and after the, uh, the Holocaust in Nazi Germany, a significant number of Jews embraced atheism. Now, there is evidence for Dawkins' uh, view that the world is blind, pitiless and indifferent. But John's being reassured that there is something else as well. John is being reassured that actually though he is at the moment separate from his creation, God is still just as glorious, though his glory may be veiled in this world. If only there was a door for all of us to go through, we would see God in all his perfection. John is being reassured as we need to be reassured. That though this world is a confusing place, God is still there. God is still sovereign. John's going to be shown yet more, and it becomes almost more exciting. Not only is God, God glorious and yet separate from his creation, God's purpose for all of his creation is that all of his creation should give him glory. Verse 6, in the centre around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third had the face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. And each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around and under his wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. These living creatures are clearly angels of some sort, aren't they? They bear a similarity, actually, to the seraphim, which Isaiah saw when he had, the, had a great vision of God in, in, in chapter 6 of his prophecy. They're especially similar to the, to the cherubim and the, the angelic living creatures, which Ezekiel saw when God visited him. They have six wings, perhaps indicating their readiness to respond to God's wills. They, they are covered with eyes, perhaps indicating that they know what's going on in this world, even if we don't sometimes. When they speak, we should listen to what they say because they really see. But why are they living creatures? Why are they in the form of a lion and an ox and a man and an eagle? I mean, one theory's had it since uh, the early days of the church that uh, um, this is, these are symbols of the, the, the four authors of the Gospels. I have to say that there's, there, there's no evidence at all for that uh, within the text. It seems much more likely that they represent what they seem to represent, the animal kingdom. One of the features of Revelation is actually that it reveals angelic representatives of, of earthly entities. All the letters to the churches in chapter, chapters 2 and 3 are actually written to their angel. We, we don't know exactly how that works, but somehow 
in heaven, in the spiritual realm, there seems to be angelic counterparts to things that go on in the, in the physical uh, creation. And so here John is seeing angelic representatives of the animal world. Wild animals represented by a lion. Domesticated animals represented by an ox. Birds represented by an eagle and a man. Isn't that interesting? In one sense, we're just another member of the animal kingdom. Now, Bishop Wilberforce need not have got quite so hysterical, actually, if you've read his Bible carefully. Genesis 2, 2, chapter 2, verse 7 says quite clearly that God made the man a living creature. Although there's more to say about mankind in a, in a minute, God first, uh, John first of all sees that all creatures, mankind alongside them, are called to praise God. Their angelic representatives in heaven do now as a sign and a promise that that is what all creatures are made for and that is what all creatures one day will do fully. They praise God for his holiness. Actually, the seraphim which saw Isaiah called God holy, 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 as these angels do here. They were speaking in Hebrew. And in Hebrew, if you wanted to emphasize something particularly, you said it twice. If I wanted to say that the weather was uh, uh, really uh, hot at the moment, wish I could, I would say it was hot, hot. But you see, just to call God holy, holy is not enough. No. God is more than just very holy. He is utterly holy. He is utterly perfect. He is utterly pure. His person defines holiness. He is holy, holy, holy. He is perfection itself. And these uh, living creatures praise God for his sovereign power. He is the Lord God Almighty. They praise him for his timeless, eternal, unchanging nature who was and is and is to come. Extraordinary, isn't it? You know, how can animals praise God in that way? I mean, we can see how the angels could do so, of course, but um, if these animals are, are representative of the uh, animal kingdom, how can they praise God? Do they praise God by doing what God made them to do, by being what God made them to be. For now it's not perfect. The sea separates us from God. The world is not as it should be, and we all know that. But in heaven there is an angelic anticipation and on earth an imperfect anticipation of the new heaven and the new earth when God will even make all his, his creatures perfect. When the praise, in fact, of all his creation will come to its fullness 
And we see that in a little part now. You know, when a, when a butterfly flaps its, uh, its iridescent wings, far, far from any human eye, it's praising God. You know, when, when in, uh, one of those luminous fish in the deepest ocean sends those uh, waves of light down its body, nobody sees it. But God, praising God. And when the albatross uh, sails and flies for hours and hours, even days and days, over the uh, vast, empty wastes of the sea, barely flapping its wings, it's praising God. There is a sense, in fact, as we look at this world, that we, we know that. Though the scientists may describe all sorts of uh, clever mechanisms about how the world works, human beings intrinsically sense that there is something far beyond that about this world. This world was made to praise God. To say anything less is like uh, claiming that you understand the uh, Mona Lisa because you've analysed the pigments in the paint. You know, this is absolutely fundamental to a Christian's view of the world. This is a world that was made to praise God. John needed to know that because he, he lived in, in, uh, in a time when there were great forces opposed to God. Seemingly powerful people threatened, to him, threatened him. And uh, he is reassured that they are only creatures. They are no different from any other creature. God's great purpose is that all creatures will one day praise him. He will not be thwarted. Why, John's told, the angels are already rejoicing in that in anticipation. Christians are fundamentally optimists about this world. Now on Remembrance Day we wear poppies. For a very good reason, because in the midst of the carnage which was the First World War, the fields of Flanders were covered in the most beautiful red poppies as a sort of promise that God's creation would be praising him long after wars have ceased. Christian hope is actually more creaturely than we might think. Revelation is going to describe a new heaven and a new earth a renewed creation, fundamentally new and yet still solid. In fact, even more solid than the world we live in now. And the solid beauty that we see in this world is just the faintest first whisper of that great future reality. John sees then that all creation has a purpose to praise God. But then he moves on and he sees more in verses 9 to 11. John sees then that God's people are made to be united with all of that creation in praising God. 
You see that in verse 9? Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. These 24 elders were actually first seen in, uh, in verse 4, where they were seated on their thrones. They were dressed in white with gold crowns on their head. It seems most likely that they are angels too. In chapter 5, verse 9, uh, they uh, seem to be describing mankind in the third person. But they represent the saved people of God. The Old Testament uh, Israel comprised 12 tribes. The New Testament church was laid on the foundation of 12 uh, apostles. And so these uh, 24 representatives seem to represent all the people of God down through the ages. They're dressed in white because God has purified them. God has forgiven them. God has clothed them afresh with a purity which is not their own. They have crowns, the equivalent of Olympic gold medals, because they have served God faithfully. But those crowns are not truly earned by them, as if they, uh, they had some power in themselves apart from God. Now they don't put their crowns in their trophy cabinet. They lay their crowns before he who ought to have them. God himself. They praise God more fully than the creatures ever could. He is worthy, they say, for anything that we can give because he created everything. Not because of some, uh, uh, some external force greater than himself. He created everything, he says, simply because he had the will to do so. By your will they were created, he says, verse 11. Nor did he create uh, uh, all things at the beginning and then just leave them. Actually, even Charles Darwin um, felt that uh, uh, he accepted that. No, say these 24 elders. Now God sustains them. They only have their being as they put it in the verse 11, because God so wills it. It's the privilege of the people of God to proclaim and celebrate that forevermore. Creatures can praise God up to a point. And we, in our creatureliness, as fellow creatures, can praise God up to a point. But for people who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, people who have come to know, Jesus, uh, know God personally, people who belong to that special group, the people of God, at any point in history, they have a still greater privilege. They can serve God willingly and lay their crowns before him. They can proclaim more fully who he is. They can head the praise alongside the living creatures. If you are a believer here this morning, this world is not purposeless. 
This world has a great purpose and you have the privilege of proclaiming that. You have the privilege of living willingly and knowingly under God's rule and thereby gaining a crown at the end of time that you will have the great and eternal privilege of laying before him and saying you are worthy to receive honour and glory and power. No doubt to the horror of Charles Darwin, he became the patron saint of many of the atrocities of the last 140 years, you know. Most notoriously, Hitler used Darwin to justify the Holocaust, the survival of the fittest. But, but then as, as uh, Richard Dawkins has so eloquently claimed, Darwin's view of the world does lead us in that direction. It is very difficult to see how we can have real solid hope at the end of this century if we really believe that there is only natural selection in this world. Actually, Darwin himself said, in the long run, a million horrid deaths may be amply repaid in the cause of humanity. He said, looking at the world at no distant date, what an endless number of lower races will have been eliminated by the higher civilized races throughout the world. How awful to be a spokesman for Darwin's view of the world. How glorious to be a spokesman for God's view of the world. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we pray that you would uh, take our blinkers off and that you would help us to live with some of the joy of heaven in anticipation that all that we see will one day be renewed, will one day perfectly praise you. And Lord, we pray that if we know you, we would be those who delight to honour and serve you. And if we don't yet know you, Lord, we pray that you would uh, turn us away from all false ideas and turn us to you, that we would see you clearly for who you are and worship you. In Christ's name, amen.